0: And when the master works on your piece, he always puts a little bit of himself into your piece, which is which can be really annoying. But if you, I think once you let go on these things, then everything also like errors are part of of the final piece as well. So I think uh, it's all about uh, being open to all these things that are coming that you will never actually predict.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Brand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour to the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. And welcome to a very special episode brought to you by Lumens, the Grand Tourist introduces. Today, I'll speak with four rising stars in the world of design, each with their own unique story to tell. We'll meet a husband and wife duo based both in Brooklyn and Athens behind an experimental firm doing mind-bending work both with artistic installations and experimental furniture. And we'll meet a young talent in Venice, Italy, who is challenging the status quo and producing whimsical and progressive works in a traditionally male-dominated field, to the delight of collectors. But first, we'll meet an award-winning landscape and garden designer from London, who is challenging his own field's status quo with an eye toward sustainability and materiality in completely chic ways, Tom Massey. His first book, RHS Resilient Garden, published with the Royal Horticultural Society, takes the rather traditional side of English gardening and applies a series of practices to address everything from soil health to mitigating the effects of climate change. Tom takes an unexpected approach to his designs. He inserted an insect laboratory to his design for this year's Chelsea Flower Show, where he won the silver medal. And he took home the gold in 2021, where he created a naturalistic garden, the first said such to be approved by the country's Soil Association. I caught up with Tom from his studio to chat about how his unlikely transition from a career in animation to gardens became a reality, how he uses unconventional materials such as barbed wire, and just what is a resilient garden anyhow. Your work is really incredible, and I've been trying to absorb as much as I can. Um, tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, your your early life and how you got started I heard you were, you were raised in London but you kind of spent your summers in in rural Cornwall tell me a little bit about that
2: yeah so I I grew up in Richmond in in southwest London which is a, a a kind of leafy green suburb of of London um so you can get into central London in about 25 minutes on the train um but you've got Richmond Park which is 10 miles around the perimeter uh if you were walking so um really quite a a wild feeling park in 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 an urban environment i think it's one of the biggest um national parks in in europe and it's full of wild deer all sorts of interesting um wildlife uh so you know you can see things like green woodpeckers that feed on yellow meadow ants and and the the relationship between them is um of special scientific interest so the the richmond park is um you know was definitely in my formative years a, a real um, inspiration on me I think you know a landscape that I really responded well to and was inspired by um, so growing up in Richmond had that access to green space got the River Thames as well and the and the, the the tow path to the river uh, you know it's one of, known as one of the best walks in and around London between uh, you know Richmond to Kingston and, and further out it's really uh, green and leafy and lots of um lots of uh you know amazing landscape around where i grew up and then um it, on it, on summer holidays in summer holidays uh my parents always took us down to cornwall and that was uh, an area called the roseland peninsula and um really we were kind of allowed to run wild so we stayed in this very dilapidated old house that was owned by a family friend uh, and we just were kind of set loose really we could go and explore the cliffs climb climb down to the beach swim in the sea uh you know explore the, the garden of that house also it had a really sort of romantic wild feel to it. it it'd been kind of un, unmaintained for for some years so you know you could crawl through hedges or explore the old orchard uh so i think as growing up as a you know as a young a young boy i just had lots of access to to, to nature and to green space, and I think that really
1: stuck with me uh, as I grew older. So, why why study garden design? What were your sort of like aspirations? How did you find yourself doing that?
2: So, I when I was sixteen, I dropped out of college. Uh, I wasn't really enjoying the A levels that I was doing. I, I I think I chose two academic subjects, doing things like IT uh, and PE, um, quite kind of intensive. Uh, you know, mainly sort of written or or desk-based work. And I decided to go and work for six months with a landscape gardener, uh, as, as he called himself. But he was kind of a garden designer, but he also did the implementation. Um, so I spent six months working with him, really enjoyed it. Um, but uh, alongside that, I also had ambitions to do an art foundation, which I don't know if you have a similar thing in the States, but it's a, a year-long course where you try out all sorts of different artistic subjects. So uh, you try a bit of film, a bit of animation, a bit of photography, um, you know, some uh, life drawing. You you do a range of things to help you decide what it is you want to do. And doing that course, I really uh, resonated with animation as as a medium. So I did a BA Honours degree in animation production uh, at the Arts University in Bournemouth. Um, So that was a three year course. And then when I graduated from that, I I worked for a bit in that field. So um, doing, you know, things for for brands, making small animations and, um, you know, bringing, bringing other people's ideas to life. And I think what I found with that was just way too much time sitting in a dark room with nothing... Although you're creating content and creative content, nothing physical. And I think that's what I felt I was missing in my career was that, uh, you know, the creativity I I thought I, I did have, but the the physical making of of things I felt was missing. So it, whilst doing that, I also took a lease on a on a warehouse space in East London, uh, an area called Haggerston. And me and a couple of friends, we renovated it and turned it into a co-working space for people working in creative industries alongside a, a small cafe. And part of that was I had a small outside space. Uh, and that kind of reminded me of the joy of designing and then bringing to fruition, you know, taking something from paper into physical space. And. Um, So my wife and I, uh, my girlfriend at the time, um, we sold our shares in that project to our friends and used it to fund uh, a a kind of retraining um, or, you know, a a career shift. So I enrolled at the London College of Garden Design, which is based at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew, uh, and did the year, the Garden Design Diploma course, which was a year-long course. And, um, yeah, I haven't really looked back since. I just absolutely loved it. Uh, really enjoyed the process of, well, the design process, but also, you know, being, working with plants, working with uh, materials, spending time outside, observing, um, you know, other people's work, going to visit. So I really just kind of absorbed as much as I could in that year. Um, and then on on graduation, I, I worked for a couple of years part time with Andrew Wilson and, and Gavin McWilliam. So Andrew is is the course director. And they were based in Chiswick. I was based in, in Richmond, so fairly nearby. So I spent two days a week working with them. And the rest of the rest of the week, I was building my own practice. And so how is your studio uh, set up today? So today in the studio, it's me uh, as sort of director, principal designer. Uh, and then I've got four people that work with me um, as project designers. So we always... Uh, at the start of any new project I I kind of assign a, a project designer to it and then we we work together on the project sometimes it's more than one designer depending on the size of the project um, and I, so I oversee every single project that comes through the studio do most of the client
1: client liaison uh, and communications with the client and you know you're known for sort of this organic approach to your work and you recently had a some work that dealt with this idea of the forest garden. And I'm wondering if you could explain to the listener, like what a forest garden is and what your take on it is. Yeah.
2: So a forest garden is, or, or a food forest, some people refer to it as is essentially a a garden that mimics the layers of a natural forest. So you've got the tree canopy layer, you've got climbing plants that climb up the trees or, or climb up fences. If it's, if it's in a residential garden, shrub layer, uh, and then you've got the kind of understory ground cover and then the roots and the the things that happen below or or in the soil um so really you're you're trying to create this self-supporting ecosystem of plants that that functions like it would in in a natural Uh, a natural setting but typically every plant is chosen for a purpose so it might be that the plant is medicinal or edible or has some kind of productive use uh, even you know for making twine or for making uh, bamboo for example using as canes so the the idea is that every plant has some kind of is chosen for a reason and has a purpose within the garden and also is supporting and um, in balance with the other species that have been chosen
1: in terms of that kind of utility are there some species that you you think you could name that maybe have utility beyond what it might be completely obvious yeah
2: so things like cumfrey uh, or symphytum officinale is is a really good plant because of the nutrients that um that it contains or plants that are nitrogen fixing things like clover uh, or legumes you know that that have nitrogen storing capacity in their roots they can provide nutrients to other plants surrounding uh, or you can make fertilisers from them, so they they assist other plants in in the landscape. Uh, but it could be as simple as a tree providing you know a shaded canopy for shade-loving plants beneath. It's um, it's uh, yeah an, an interesting concept and and is quite an old. Um, I think increasingly I'm finding in my work going back to older learnings or older teaching, the you know, organic principles is. Um, Often, often the answer is not as complex as it maybe it seems to be, and we just need to s- stop using chemicals, stop using pesticides. Uh, you know, some sometimes solutions to problems that we're facing are are relatively simple. It just requires a rethinking or a reframing of an approach.
1: And you know, you're you're known for kind of use of of unusual materials. You talked about barbed wire in the last one. Uh, in this one, you have this sort of bug-eyed dome, you had a perennial sanctuary garden where there was a large sort of a court and steel bowl and as like a pond. Um, and I'm wondering, like, is there a part of you that obviously that kind of maybe feels a little bit more, you know, you like to integrate sort of objects and design a little bit more in the built environment into your work, maybe that some of your peers, or do you think that is that fair to say? Yeah, I, th-
2: I think I, I'm also interested in architecture and objects. I think that is definitely fair to say. Um, I think, I, as I said earlier, you know, I was always interested in art and design and ca- come from a, a, a kind of art and design background. So um, when I was younger, I was always making things, you know, whether that's a treehouse or, uh, you know, a little model of, a, um, you, you know, I, just, I was just always creating things sticking things together you know playing around with with building things um so i think again that that comes from quite a young a young age that that interest and that fascination with objects or with structures
1: and when it comes to like organic gardening um yeah i hear that you've you've tried to kind of you know implement these kinds of um this kind of idea into show gardens and things like that what does that actually mean because obviously to someone who's uh, I've interviewed many garden designers before. Uh, I've heard different different things from different people. And obviously, the, it sounds like a garden should be all organic as long as you're not using maybe pesticides. What makes an organic garden per se from like your very ground floor uh, way of seeing yeah, it? Yeah,
2: so I, I think, as you say, you know, really we should, if, you, if you're gardening sustainably or in, in a way that is um, sort of more aware of the environment around you, you probably are organic gardening anyway there's a set of principles that really apply so it's not using any chemical pesticides or fertilizers so essentially taking chemicals off the table um, and that means by that by the very nature of doing that you need to have a more relaxed and laid-back approach I suppose so if you have an outbreak of a certain pest you know it might be that you can put a bird feeder next to that encourage birds in who will then eat that pest or you know having a small wildlife pond that would encourage frogs or toads that might eat slugs or snails uh, so it's kind of removing the the sort of nuclear options from your arsenal in a way so not just deciding you know as soon as you spot anything that might be eating your plants just to spray that with chemicals that will indiscriminately, indiscriminately uh, potentially poison other species that you might be you know less worried about um so that that's one key principle is trying to reduce plastic you know or, or reuse repurpose recycle where you can um creating compost from garden cuttings or garden waste and then incorporating that back into the soil so here in the uk there's a there's a body called the soil or an organisation called the soil association and you can um they they certify gardens or farms or um growers as organic uh, so there's probably similar bodies in the U.S., I would imagine, who, who also provide that certification. For for the average gardener, you're not going to go to the lengths of organic certification because it's a lot of paperwork and a lot of time.
1: Um, but you can still follow the principles that, that people like the Soil Association uh, promote. Do you think people are more open to experimentation? Like, do you think the kind of the old guard of the Chelsea Flower Show and that kind of uh, maybe, you know... Uh what's the the type of hat that you know <laughs> you wear at the, the straw hat that you yeah. normally wear yeah. yeah like a little like a straw hat uh you know fancy hat kind of society sort of vibe think people are are a little bit more experimental and artistic about their approach and what they expect out of it and what they're willing to tolerate I
2: do yeah and I think I think there's a few practitioners who are who are trying different things you know who are may like you you mentioned earlier using more or you know potentially radical materials things like rubble or crushed uh crushed concrete or uh construction waste you know utilizing these things as finished landscape elements and i i think You know that that we we've got so much waste in the world that we could stop making it. You know we could almost stop making anything and just reuse our waste for probably hundreds of years. Uh, But we we've just got this obsession with constantly using resources, making new things, buying new things. Um, You know it's crazy when you think about packaging, single-use plastic packaging. You know even something like a spray bottle or a jam jar could be used hundreds, if not thousands, of times. We use it once and then chuck it in the recycling or just throw it away. Um, and then it's recycled and made into the you know the same thing or a similar thing again and again so we're living in this this time where we're living at the the bubble you know the 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 boom is going to happen at some some point um and i think we need to start to anticipate that and um yeah so i think by I think a lot of people are aware of that, and particularly a lot of younger people, who who know that they're going to be the ones that are living through this time. I think, um, as you say, the straw hat brigade, maybe uh, e- even even you know even then, I think a lot of people at Chelsea Flower Show you know, it's typically an older, um, more conservative audience. I think they are, are shifting their perception of what they see as acceptable in in garden terms.
1: Mm-hmm. And, you know, speaking of the forest garden concept, I, I did want to bring up your book, Resilient Garden, which kind of runs alongside this concept. What made you choose this topic for a book specifically and for your first book? And and can you kind of tell us a little bit about uh, what people can expect to see inside the book?
2: Yeah. So the the book is it's in partnership with the RHS. And I was really pleased to be asked. So DK of the publisher and they work a lot with the RHS. And they kind of brought us together and said, you know, we'd love to write this book with Tom. We think the RHS would be great to be involved with it. So I was given access to the RHS science team uh, and the RHS, not, not many people know, have a whole science department where they're studying things like uh, the pollution capturing abilities of certain plants or how drought tolerant plants are, or how good they are for pollinators or what kind of fruit and vegetables perform best. So they've got had this this, this incredible access to their science team to be able to ask questions and, and discover, uh, you know, read their papers and, and explore their research so the book is really grounded in in science and is um i suppose it starts out as an exploration kind of what we've talked through where you know how i came to garden design and and what i'm inspired by then it goes on to talk in more practical terms about how people can start to become or, or, or design their gardens or implement changes in the way that they garden to become more resilient and more adaptable to climate change and and a lot of that is adapting to more extreme weather events. So planning for heat waves or droughts or for waterlogging in the winter. And the 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 garden the, the middle of the book has this um, this kind of theoretical resilient garden where it shows a very typical suburban plot, which probably is also uh, you know very relevant to a lot of gardens in the states or in Australia or in other parts of parts of the world. Uh, so it, it's got a very The the kind of before garden has a very hard paved, um, you know, almost zero biodiversity, uh, just parking, parking lot basically for cars. And then it shows how you could change that and implement some plants and and change the material to a recycled gravel that's permeable, how you can harvest rainwater and store that uh, and how you can design a scheme that is both beneficial for humans. You know, plants cool the air, they provide shade, uh, they can um, provide food. and also for wildlife so whilst doing that can also provide food for pollinators or for larger mammals or birds so it really kind of takes um it sort of starts off by explaining what climate change is in in quite simple terms because you know it's such a big subject it the book isn't really about that and then goes on to how to analyze your own garden how to look at the conditions it's facing now but also might face in the future and then how to implement that and and design and maintain a space that is more
1: adapted to this this changing climate that we're facing and so i'm, I'm curious like what is your own garden like or do you have <laughs> do you have your own garden I have a tiny courtyard
2: okay. and it's taken me uh, about three years to get it somewhere near finished oh, just gosh. because I've been doing it sort of in and around um, other projects, renovating my house. Um, so the garden was definitely the, the last thing to be done. It was, I guess it, there's a term busman's holiday in the UK where, you know, when you've when you when you've got any downtime, you don't necessarily want to be doing the thing that you do day in, day out. But obviously, you know, I I, I did want to do it. It was just finding the time. So it's a mix of old plants from show gardens, um, paving that I've rescued from other projects, uh, recycled gravel, uh, a water butt that I made from an old copper tank. So it's a bit of a, a mishmash of, of other, other things that I've sort of cobbled together. But it's a nice, it's a nice space and it's, um, yeah it's, it's starting to come to life
1: now. Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Lumens. We're living in a golden age of design where architects, interior designers, and estates have access to nearly every brand in the world. As this magazine veteran knows all too well, a trusted source is essential to any successful design story. That's where Lumens comes in. As the preeminent destination for grand tourist-worthy lighting, furniture, and accessories, Lumens carries designs from more than 400 global brands. With in-house service and account specialists that are your personal connection to good design, Lumens curates authentic designs that run the gamut from iconic pieces to of-the-moment exclusives by designers fans of this podcast will certainly recognize, like Piero Lissoni, Philippe Stark, and Colin King. But you'll also find emerging designers, such as the rising star from Texas, Nina Magan, and emerging brands, too, such as lighting from New York studio Rosie Lee, much of it exclusive to Lumens, or mid-century chic furniture from the brand Mater. To make sure you're considering the very latest on the market, visit lumens.com. That's L-U-M-E-N-S dot My next pair of guests create some of the most daring furniture and installations in collectible design. From their offices in Brooklyn and Athens, the team of objects of common interest create colorful works that look like they jumped right out of an AI-generated alien landscape in materials like resin and silicone and installations for galleries like Milifar in Milan, or even outdoor fountains made from biodegradable plastic. I caught up with founders Eleni Petaloti and Leonidas Tramboukas from their New York office to discover a bit about their creative process, why they love to start from scratch, and why they hate their work being called Instagrammable. When did, when did the, the two of you guys put, lay eyes on each other, as we say? Uh,
3: we know each other since uh, the 90s, uh, believe it or not, uh, because we're from the same city, we're from the same hometown, so we knew each other even prior to architecture school, from high school, uh, and then uh, it, it's fun, but our academic um, path, it's the uh, same, exactly, but I'm just like one year, um, like he's one year ahead. Uh, so we both went the same architecture school, polytechnic school in Greece. We both went to the same school in Paris uh, called De La Villette. And we both had masters at Columbia University, but without copying each other. It just happened to be the same steps.
1: And at what point did you guys, Leo, what, at what point did you guys uh, sort of connect you know, uh, later Actually, on Actually,
4: the last part when we came to New York was it was my decision to come to New York. I had to come for a master's and I had just met Eleni, officially met. We were together one year before that. And I told her, listen, I'm going to New York. Come, 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 as, come over as well. So she came supposedly for a summer. She did a summer internship and then one thing brought the other. We stayed for 15 years. Wow.
1: And when did you guys decide to start Working together, how did that connection start?
3: We actually did not decide. It it just happened. Or if it was a decision, we wouldn't decide to work together. It wasn't like an official decision. Let's do that together. Um, we it, it happened very organically. Uh, we both had different jobs. Leo was like a heavy duty in architecture. I was even an architect. I was working uh, uh, contemporary art work for almost nine years in New York, and we received some architecture commissions. Uh, and we start working, you know, late nights, weekends, like everybody does. Uh, so we start working together because it was impossible to put pull a team together while you're working for s- some some other people. Uh, and then one brought the other, another project, another project. And officially, when I stopped working 2016 in two thousand sixteen in in the contemporary artwork, we also um, established objects of common interest as a studio together
1: and did lot come first or and objects of common interest were was like a line from lot is that is that how so uh, we started
4: uh, lot first uh because at that time we had no involvement with uh with design we were architects eleni was working the arts i was working in architecture we had some commissions and we started working in architecture but then organically we started building some ob some uh, furniture and objects not as a line just playing around experimentation so many of our friends and colleagues they started seeing the stuff said guys these are nice why don't you keep uh, doing this so w- with without officially launching a design studio we started making more and more and more and we found some fabricators we were working in Greece and in New York as well and then at some point during 2016 we officially uh, thought of uh, the name of common interest and launched an official studio uh, in parallel with the architecture we're the same people working the same uh, projects but just have two identities so we can run in parallel without interfering in scale and in complexity and schedule of work. And if you had to explain to somebody today, you know,
1: what what is the signature of of objects of common interest and and explaining this sort of aesthetic to a stranger, obviously I feel like I could explain it a little bit, but I would love to hear from you guys how you describe your work in a sense. It just sounds very kind of uh, it's a very basic question, but I'm I'm fascinated to hear your answer.
4: So if I would uh, I would answer this question. A a characteristic that I think we both agree is true is that we don't have a specific uh, aesthetic identity, meaning we don't repeat uh, the same idea, the same formal expression uh, in variations. So every time we, we start a project, it's it starts from scratch almost, it's a new thing. We start with sketches, with experimenting with materials, we don't many designers and artists they have a, a, a thing they have their thing and they, they multiply it and they make variations of it. Uh, we are bored of doing this, This we want every time to, to challenge ourselves and do something new and over time this became our aesthetic identity actually because there is, it seems very disconnected from project to project but there is an underlying idea in our, that's a bit more blurry in our minds, that sometimes it comes out in the work clearly, but sometimes it's very vague. Uh, if we were to describe, we work with abstraction, we've, we've mentioned many times in other interviews that in, in, in terms of taking something that's, uh, there is a, form, a formal expression of it, but there is a concept behind it that it, it makes it intentionally abstract, intentionally um, ambiguous. Of what it would be. Sometimes it's a stool, sometimes it's a seat, sometimes it's not specific. And in that in that sense, it's, it it blurs the boundaries between art and design, uh, utilitarian and and uh, non-utilitarian.
3: Uh, along the way, we realize that an an underlying concept in anything we do, it's about creating feelings. We're very very. Uh, in in our um, conceptual conversation we have the two of us, we have with our studio is about what are we trying to succeed, meaning uh, w- w- we're welcoming people, welcome audience to experience our objects, our installation and, and we always want to leave an open-ended uh, uh, selection of feelings so it's about always inviting someone to in a way uh, stop for a second and have a feedback, let's say, to our work.
4: And why do you think that's so important? Because uh, we live uh, among objects, and it's they're meant to be interacted with. So uh, it's not something you look on from a distance. It's something you touch, and something you uh, you want to have next to you in your house, in your office, in your uh, domestic environment. So it's a relationship, and that's also uh, something we 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 have a connection through our personal life, we get connected with objects that we collect or with objects that we have inherited from our our families or with objects that we live with. We're very connected with the things we live with. And that's the way we think about the object we design, that people will make a a special connection with them. And when it comes to to clusters of objects, when they become installations, when they become uh, uh, spaces, then it's even more important because they define the way we live among these objects.
3: To me, it's even further personal because um, it's, um, my, my grandfather was a design collector. He would just travel to, to Italy to bring in a six and seventies design object. I, I don't remember him because he, he committed suicide when I was six months old. So I have the memory of my grandfather and grandmother through objects. So I, I establish a very interesting relationship with uh, obsessing with uh, design objects or element like uh, imp- uh, that are very important for me because for me these symbolize a connection with a with a story which is my grandfather or a trip that he made. So taking that into making objects for us or 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 elements or installation, uh, we believe, as Leo said, much further that we. It, it's a strong relationship there and it's not something we buy and then let's go buy the next one let's go buy the next one it's about creating this relationship with the and the stories and establishing memories
1: and how do you guys uh you know as a couple you're a married couple i i do you have you have two kids and um what is it like you know uh is sort of in your life you know how do you guys operate as a studio because you you bounce between athens uh and Williamsburg, right, two places that probably couldn't be more different, or maybe they are, I don't know. Um, Do you guys have a division of labor in terms of, like, is one do is one of you better with sketching and one of you better with materials or vice versa or how do you guys like to work together? It's
4: actually very organic. Very, uh, we have separation between us and Eleni, so uh, especially between the, the architecture studio and the design studio. So uh, we have a clear separation there. We always start together by thinking and uh, conceptualizing and, uh, and, and, and running a strategy if. There, we don't really do a strategy but you no know, strategy on how we will think of a project but um, there is no standard there is no standard our team is uh, most of our team is in greece we have two studios in greece the fabrication studio and the, the office studio and we have a studio here And uh, we are on the move as well so we are constantly uh, in communication casually between us between the team uh, sketching sending sketches informally but at the same time also having formal meetings and, uh, and visiting the, the studio there. So there is not a standard way of working, actually. But when it comes to uh, starting production of a project, then things become efficient and very clear uh, who runs the production, who has the decision-making. Uh, with, after we have finished, the let's say, the creative part of a the project, then it's a production line.
3: If you see some someone, how we live and how we work, I think it's going to look a mess, but if, if there is a real, real structure there, uh, it's it's a, as you said, we have two children now, one is five and a half and the other one is one and a half, and um, we have a strong belief that if you want to spend some time with your children, you have to adapt on that, otherwise they're complete, growing up completely independently from you, so right now it looks very... Messy, but it's not. Uh, we have an amazing, uh, amazing team with brilliant architects, uh, curators, and other people. Uh, that they, we are all very synced on how we, we think, so that makes things more uh, smooth. and, and, and uh, So we jump between Greece and in New York, uh, we jump between studios, we jump, we jump between projects and scales, but all this happens very smoothly and organically. Uh, I think it arrives from the, our personality as well, that as Leo said, we cannot multiply one thing in larger scale, smaller scale, different colors. Um, every project it's a starting point for us, it's a new project from zero and we start brainstorming, sending ideas, they start being developed so uh, it's uh, it's a very inspiration moment for us, the kids and the way you see a young um, human being uh, kind of like building their taste or their interest it's very intriguing for us because it has to do so much about the space we are creating, spaces we're creating, or spaces we live in.
1: And do you think that there's uh, an element, you know, to a to an American audience or to a New York audience, um, do you think that there's anything uniquely about the way you think about design that is uh, Greek, specifically?
4: Greek. There is always an influence, but it's subtle. It's in the back of our, our minds. Sometimes we bring it out with a more immediate reference, for example, we did this project with a Quadrat um, uh, that we presented in uh, three days of design in Copenhagen, I think, two years ago. It was two big uh, full-scale Doric Greek columns that were rotating compartments with uh, Quadrat fabrics that were spinning around doing uh, crazy uh, shapes. That was uh, a, a project, it was an open brief that we brought in a Greek reference of the Greek column, something iconic. But uh, it was intentional, came from us this idea of of uh, iconography of of uh, of a Greek reference. But most of the times it's, as Eleni mentioned earlier, it's a, a feeling, it's something abstract. It's an abstract ab- memories we have of, of spaces, of landscapes, of the sun, of uh, uh, more vague ideas that we most we bring in in the work. Sometimes it's not visible to anybody, but it, but to us, we try to describe it through a, a conceptual text. But there is always a, a reference that, at least in our mind, is is uh, is comes from our cultural background.
3: If I can add to that, uh, for uh, my main idea when we create an installation or a public uh, project. I always have in my mind the feeling that you have when you walk down a um a small public plaza in a Greek island in a late afternoon or an evening. There is this like it's it's a feeling of like relaxation of a uh, subtle happiness of 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 calmness that is always stuck in my mind when uh, I'm thinking of inviting people to exper- experience something that we have made. So, yeah, that cannot go more Greek than, than that, I guess.
4: Also, to add to this, it's is also the, uh, from this, uh, this uh, idea comes that the, uh, our obsession with the tactility and with uh, materiality, uh, that people can touch what we do, we want people to interact, and also a, a, a sense of uh, warmth. And that comes again from I think Eleni's references of the of the Greek uh, island squares. Uh, we cre- when we create space through objects, it's uh, is we we don't want to just have a monumental or uh, a cold environment. We want to create intimacy and uh, and warmth.
1: And if someone were, if a, d- a design critic uh, were to go and visit one of your shows, or see one of your public installations, and describe uh, the work in a specific way i'm curious like what is the worst way in your own mind what is the worst way for someone to describe your work
3: instagrammable
1: <gasps> oh why
3: so i love instagram and i i believe it's a great medium of of uh, someone expressing uh, their personality uh, and like a, the the people's presence of like documenting our work in Instagram or social media it's spectacular and I loved it like I'm so many times I'm requesting from people I don't know docu- documented videos or pictures and I love them and I keep them for our own website but I feel that critics or like journalists sometimes they use this term and that can be uh, sometimes so shallow so we don't want just people come in, take a picture and go. That's, that's the, the, the least we want to do. So we want uh, people get intrigued or people go around, people kind of trying to test or see or hate it or love it. It's up to them, but just try to explore further than just get in, take a snap and go.
1: And and Eleni, you speak about your work wanting to uh, evoke emotions. What kind of emotions would you like to foster in your children about your work, so that if I interview them twenty years from now, thirty years from now, when I'm an old man, and I said, "What did you? What kind of emotions did you learn being the if, the children of uh, Leo and Eleni? If, if what, what I, if I can add something,
4: a lot of most of the emotions that we talk about, and uh, they come from memory. So memories create emotions, and I think what at least we're trying to achieve with living, working, and living with our children and our work organically is that we want them to 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 build memories of uh, us and them together with the work and uh, that will as eleni talks about her grandfather that will develop their own feelings about what they've been uh, experiencing
3: to meet the word inclusion we we so we 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 have them everywhere with us. We let them use everything their studi- our studio our is their studio it's about including and one message we're trying to to pass to them through our work through the way we live in the way we work is about including everyone that our work is for everyone it's for them it's for babies it's for older it's for for it's inclusion it's a, a funny stories when we had the exhibition at the Noguchi Museum. Uh, one of the um, rooms, uh, we have been asked by the chief uh, curator to create a, a ideal dream lounge environment, and in there was our tube chair. And the last day of the exhibition, there was uh, someone was asking our son, uh, "Oh, do you have this chair in your house?" And very casual, and he was. At form at the time, he was like, oh, no, not my home. I have it at my studio. So it, 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 he he feels part of the process. And I think that's what we wanted to succeed and we feel happy about.
1: Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Lumens. We're living in a golden age of design where architects, interior designers, and esthetes have access to nearly every brand in the world. As this magazine veteran knows all too well, a trusted source is essential to any successful design story. That's where Lumens comes in. One of our guests today, Lutra Masari, is a towering example of the power of glass. The medium provides endless possibilities for designers, and you'll find lots of great examples on lumens.com. You'll spot the classic Alto vase from Itala in various colors, elegantly simple bowls and vases from Otto Copenhagen, and even groovy teapots from British legend Tom Dixon. And if you're looking for minimal basics and tableware, you'll find a huge assortment from the Turkish based brand Nude Glass. I love their Orion table lamp made from glass, concrete, and marble. Its plume like shape is both modernistic and classic and would fit into just about any interior. To make sure your home includes translucent beauties you'll treasure forever, visit lumens.com. That's L U M E N S.com. My next guest is taking one of the oldest and most revered corners of art and design and turning it on its head, Lucia Massari. Born in Venice and trained at the Royal College of Art in London, under the eye of our former guest, Martino Gamper, actually, Lucia is working, as she puts it, to desacralize glass. You might know her for her series of adorable yet fragile clown-like mirrors, or for her bulbous vases with painted giraffes created for Dolce and Gabbana Casa, or for cabinets covered in glass on all sides in colors like blue, orange, pink, and green. I caught up with Lucha from her hometown to speak about her work that's even more radical coming from a native-born daughter of Venice, where her whimsical ideas come from, and why she couldn't resist the pullback to her native homeland. Uh, tell me a little bit about your, your upbringing, because you, you were raised in Venice, but I was wondering what your kind of earliest memories of, of life uh, in Venice were.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was born in the, in the main island. I was born in Venice and uh, you know, like Venice is divided in six uh, areas uh, and one of those is called Castello, which has been, mean, which means um, castle. Uh, I mean, because there was a medieval fortress there. Um, so if you actually compare Venice to a shape of, you know, of, of a fish, Castello would be the tail. Um, so I've been raised, <laughs> the funny thing is like i've been raised one bridge distance to where i live now so it's it's kind of funny you know that my kids are playing in the same campo uh, going to the same school that i was going to you know wow. um but i was raised like raised like pretty much like um wild um as we are a large family and i was very um i was very independent since childhood so also because you know venice at the time was uh, quite of uh, an easy going place to live um, so I was just like. Uh, going around and like quite uh, at a young age so I was just I think I remember the one of the best game I was playing as a kid was just like getting lost um, and also <laughs> trying I, to I, get lost yeah yeah but I was just I like, always find a way <laughs> somehow um, but I also remember very fondly like spending all the summer time on the boat uh, like swimming in the lagoon and drinking a lot of uh, very salty water <laughs> all this kind of thing and I think like the slowness of the water in the canals and really it felt like uh, the time was just going slower uh, the, than the other time zones somehow.
1: Yeah exactly and so at, at, at what point did you kind of decide to go and, and study design?
0: Well I always wanted to be a designer actually since a very early age only I, I just didn't know that it was called design <laughs> so I studied design in Italy first uh, I had my degree uh, in Treviso. Um, I mean, it was just yeah, it was just a good school. Uh, you know, like university here are like very academic. You study a lot. Um, you study like history a lot, but they never you never really get dirty. You know, like um, there's not much space in experimentation. Um, you know, so a lot of
1: studio practice kind of yeah, stuff.
0: exactly, exactly. Yeah. So once I graduated, I really wanted to go to London. Uh, The Royal College of Art, because I think it was just one of the best. I think like still like World Wild, I think is one of the best. Um, So I just really wanted to be there. And, um, you know, once once there, I just got in like, to me, it was just magic, you know. Uh, But I was really, really uh, rough. I mean, I was really like, uh, really at the beginning. I I actually didn't know what I really wanted to be. Uh, And I really spent like these two years experimenting what I wanted to be. And I really don't think they were really successful years. Uh, and also they were pretty tough. They were really, they felt like five years. Uh, but they definitely really uh, shaped me. Uh, they, they gave me depth. Uh, they helped me question myself all the time. And, and I think like they, they kind of forced me to, to, to search for the answer uh, when the process of, of, of searching for the answer was, you know, the answer itself, you know. And I was extremely lucky, you know, to be able to have tutors like Martino Gamper, Jürgen Bay. Uh, they really opened up my vision. I was just incredibly happy, lucky. Uh, so I, you know, once I graduated, I then um, decided to to stay in England, uh, you know, as London, you know, is, 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 has a really great um, design scene. Uh, but then, like, eventually I got, um, I got called, like, in, like, for few residency and uh, all all of them they were just back in italy and and just few of them even in in venice which was really strange to me because you know it was a place where i really was just running Away from um, because I didn't feel like it was it was a uh, you know it was my place was really kind of uh, helped me helped me to to shape my uh, you know my my interest you know in in design um, but you know I think like all these these occasions were really crucial to me uh, to get closer to this uh, craftsmanship uh, to the work of artisans uh, and I think like back in in England I you know the work was not the same thing uh, so I really kind of uh, missed this. Uh, uh, the skills that actually complemented my work. Um, you know, one, in, during one of these residencies, I actually um, went back to, I mean, I, I worked with Glass, uh, and then I just uh, eventually returned to Venice permanently.
1: Was it, was it, did you experience any sort of reverse culture shock when you come back to Venice uh, and try to work there? Or was it once you had experienced life in London for a few years?
0: Well, it's definitely uh, like a huge gap it's a huge gap between venice and and london is just like i don't know how many centuries just <laughs> goes by i think it's uh you know my, i mean i i i'm i'm so much rooted into this the the, the this the, my culture and especially venice that i really i i can even though i kind of feel very distant somehow i believe really, uh i have so much attachment you know to everything that is uh Uh, connected to it. So I really, uh, you know, I have this like, hate and love sort of uh, uh, relationship. Uh, And I don't know, I just didn't want to stay in London for for longer. I I know that I I, I needed to be here anyway. Um, Yeah.
1: And, you know, for the past couple of years, you've had uh, some work and furniture and other objects. And now it's kind of come more and more sort of back to uh, glass, like what sort of spurred that kind of return to I guess you could say the family business in a a way
0: (laughs) well I don't know I I think it's it's uh it's true that I I had this sort of like uh change in uh, but it's kind of funny to me like considering I didn't want to work with glass at all I mean it's uh I I really I felt very distant to this material I just didn't want to do it um due to you know probably the weight of the family legacy or historical significance that, um, of this material, you know, I, um, I just, I just didn't want to have this, this, this weight on me. I just did, didn't feel like any connection to it. But then eventually when I started, I was, I was already seduced, like I was just trapped in the trap. Um, I really, I have this feeling that, you know, I, I didn't choose glass deliberately. I really didn't didn't want to work with it i mean I also like i rejected it somehow but then glass found its way to me like independently i i just believe that you know like every designer has his own material the, the the kind of material that you know that engage them more than other materials you know so i i just find glass very stimulating i think it's uh um it's kind of a, it's a sort of material that i that i find really easy to work i'm and I also like over time I became very passionate, and and it's a material that helps me to express myself much better than others. And I understand, and I understand the nature of it. So once you understand the nature of the material, then it, you can be really free in experimenting. You know, you understand it, and you, then you are free. You know, you you just go deeper and deeper, and you are just uh, just free.
1: And and you you told. Uh... Uh, Architectural Digest uh, in an article that you felt the need to sort of desacralize Murano glass. Can you explain a little bit about uh, what that is and what what you meant? What do you mean by that?
0: I mean this is part of the reason why I didn't want to work with glass because I found it really challenging. You know, I I just at the beginning was just um, was very very difficult to to detach myself, you know, and envision a sort of like a fresh perspective on, on the meaning of contemporary glass, you know, also because Venetian glass, it carries this, this own uh, distinct aesthetic, you know. It can be also very overwhelming to to consider that, that there are so many artists, so many people have been working uh, with this material, you know, in the past. Uh, so I, I also, like, felt that somehow everything <laughs> was already been done, everything was already been com- accomplished, you know. So, uh, and also like, it's also very, very difficult to engage sometimes with furnace. I mean, if you, if you uh, self-produce, then you really need to have, you know, a good amount of money, you know, for, to make your piece. Um, So I really feel like, and I always felt it, and I think really, I I feel very uh, happy, like very, very fortunate that, that, because I really feel that there's a, it's a luxury, you know, being able to approach this craftsmanship, you know um so i really felt like the, the the only way that i could work with this material uh, was just like to to navigate around it uh to 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 find my own way and, and i think it's it irony is is the way be, way like the best way that i found to to circumvent it you know what i mean uh, so like desacralizing uh, and demythologizing that you know that's what i said like the just way to make it uh, also like visually accessible somehow you know
1: mm. and when you were design creating your designs whether it's the mirrors or the, the chandeliers or anything like that and and you're using sort of like a contemporary language and a kind of um a youthful language was it difficult to find producers that wanted to Because your work is also looks quite complex too at the same time. It's not like it's simple at all. Um, So, was it hard to convince a furnace to kind of work with you? And did you have to kind of navigate that? Or did you, or were they actually excited to kind of do something totally different?
0: No, I mean, it's not, they're quite open. Once you pay, (laughs) there's really not a problem. (laughs) They're quite open for this. I mean, they are actually, over time, they they learn to, uh, to work with artists. And I think like working with artists is kind of, easier than designers in a way because designers have this specific idea or on how the material should um should behave you know what i mean uh, so so they kind of they make this specific drawing most of the time like 3- 3d <laughs> autocad or, <laughs> or rhino <laughs> they go there to the furnace and the the, the ma- maestro had the master say like you know just Take your pencil and just draw it you know on a piece of paper because this they're not used to that's probably the the reason why I love glass a lot because I don't require like specific skills like specific three d skills to to make my idea just grow just 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 uh and I think it's uh they they're really open to it they 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 i I would say that they 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 are born for that they 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 can just translate every uh, ideas and every everything, they can they're really good at it.
1: And you know, when it comes to your specific uh, the designs that you've been doing for the past you know five or six years, where did the where does sort of the ideas come from for these shapes? Like, what is your sort of creative process? Is it just from sort of like your imagination, or where did these uh, because they seem. They seem very, uh, very. They're very cohesive, but they're also very kind of unique and original. So I was wondering if they came from a particular place, or if it if it was just something that you, um, maybe from your illustrations or or something like that.
0: Well, like some of them comes from illustrations. Some of them comes from from colors. Some of them come from, uh, like I think like I I would say like since I started working with glass, I. I think I, I start actually to experience some sort of like synesthesia, you know, like when you have like certain colors evoke specific memories or materials like trigger childhood recollection. Um, I think it's uh, I think it's the reason why I, I kind of like glass. I think it, I, I don't know, I think it has a sort of like a annoying human-like attitude. Uh, it has like its, its own will that is very kind of, I would say like pushy, like intrusive, uh, persistent. Uh, it has this kind of characteristic that I I appreciate actually. So I always seek for glass to kind of express itself and contribute to the final artwork. So whatever I have, I envision a shape. I always kind of leave uh, the a portion of the material, you know, to to contribute to the final form. So no matter how much I try to to kind of manipulate. Uh, the material like with a certain technique uh, but you know kind of the material as as always like a language um, that sometimes like really suggests the very form so it's really true like I have uh, I could actually work on shapes I can I I have like different um, every time like Also, when I start working with uh, this company, which is called um, Barbini Specchi Veneziani. So the more you go deep into the uh, sort of like uh, uh, craftsmanship, the more you like start to think of different um, way of using the same craftsmanship in, in a way that... Uh, Suggests you uh, um, shapes and and um, alternatives, you know, to to what you want to express. Uh, so I think it's just like everything comes like as a chain, one after the other, you know. And then and then glass does does the rest.
1: <laughs> if I had to ask my last question, if I had to ask you what you felt, how you could define your work and the purpose of your work in one sentence what would that be
0: uh, i n- normally ask people to define it <laughs> i guess it's just too difficult for me probably because i'm so into it that i really i uh, I, I don't know because i really i have this um, i feel very much i think i'm kind of color driven a lot i think my my work is very much connected with with color and i and i probably this is another reason why I think I I love glass quite a lot because glass glass really kind of reflects light uh, and and light is the essence of colors so most of my work really kind of it's it's all about uh, using glass as a sort of like moldable color so I I just I could just describe it as color something. <laughs> uh, because I, I, I really think like a lot of my my work really has, has a lot of a like a strong connection with colors.
1: Could you live in a house without any color?
0: I would never, I would never, <laughs> <laughs> never. I would die.
1: Thank you to all of our guests, Tom, Eleni, Leonidas and Lucha, and to our sponsor Lumens for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.